Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. It is a great pleasure to introduce New York Times bestselling author Joyce Maynard, who is here to talk about her latest novel, Under the Influence. Publishers Weekly stated, Maynard's latest is illuminating and mesmerizing, highlighting not only differing definitions of friendship, but the shades of gray between right and wrong, and the lengths to which some will go to protect their self-interest. I know once you start reading this book, it will be impossible for you to put down, because it was for me. Joyce has an amazing life and career. Readers have devoured her books, Labor Day, After Her, The Good Daughters, and so many more. And they've also devoured her pies, but I'll let her talk about that. It's just amazing. She has so many talents. She teaches writing, and she's such a wonderful storyteller. Thank you so much for sharing your talents with us. Please welcome Joyce Maynard. I have to tell you, um, my publisher wasn't going to send me to Denver, and they said, you know, kind of bookstore events are over, and I said, absolutely, I am going to Denver. This is one of my favorite cities and favorite bookstores, uh, so thank you for turning out so I can tell them, see, uh, and, and the truth is, even if there were um, four people here tonight, I would want to be here because um, I cannot... I would. I cannot imagine my life without you, without readers. I. Um, I don't think there are too many people who can stand up and say I have been working full time as a writer. I've been publishing books for forty five years now. Um, many things have changed um, over those years and those books, um, as have I. Um, but the 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 constant. Um, and it is probably one of the biggest constants, maybe the the biggest constant in my life is my relationship with readers. It's a my one complaint with what I do for my for my living and my joy is that um, it's a very solitary act writing books, um, and I'm rather a sociable person. So this is my moment when I get to. Um, uh, go out in the world and put on my fancy dress and, and meet you. And, and I, this is all by way of saying that I really hope I'm going to hear from you tonight. I, I will read, but my favorite, and I am a ham, so I love to read. In fact, if you like my reading, you can get this book on, on, um, audiobook read by me. I read all my books, um, myself because I, I really love to read. Um, but even more than that, I love to hear from readers. So, um, please don't be shy tonight. Um, we'll, um, I want to leave lots of time to hear what's on your mind, um, about this book or other books of mine or the writing process in general. Um, uh, it's this one I'll, I'll describe very briefly to you. It's called Under the Influence. Um, and this one is about friendship and the loss of a friendship, betrayal in a friendship um, of women, um, which is, I think, an experience that will resonate for certainly a lot of women. I, 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 as I have gone around talking about this book, um, 
I have almost never met a woman who didn't have her own story of a lost friend. Um, I don't mean that men haven't lost some friends along the way too, but I, um, in, in, this is a particular kind of loss and, in, and betrayal that actually in some ways is as painful or more so than, than the loss of a love affair. Um, so I wanted to explore that theme, um, and I chose a character. I always think that I'm choosing characters that are nothing like me, and then uh, various little aspects of me start bubbling to the surface, whether I like them to be there or not. Um, so she's much younger than me. She's 38. Her name is Helen. Um, she is, um, as I was for many, many years, a single mother. That I guess I'd have to say that's a theme of my writing. I, I tend to explore the experience of raising, raising a child alone because I did it. My children are now all in their 30s. Um, um, and she, life, when, when her story begins, life has not been going well for Helen. She's, um, she's, her marriage has ended. She's um, lost custody of her son as a result of a drunk driving episode. Um, she's in a dead-end job. She really doesn't have family in her life. And into this rather dark situation stuck place comes this magical, charismatic, fabulous couple, Swift and Ava Haviland. I had a lot of fun writing this couple. And they're, um, they, she meets them when she's um, helping a caterer at an art opening at which they are the very glamorous uh, benefactors. And they take her under their wing and befriend her and scoop her up. Um, they're big dog lovers, and they, 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 she's sort of their rescue dog. Um, she brings, they bring her home, and she becomes a part of their, their magical world. And to her, they are her family. Um, and actually, they, they offer the prospect of a way to get her son back as well. And that's, um, that is the the burning desire of her of her existence um, she does not understand that there is a price to pay for their um, uh, their generosity um, but i 'm not going to give any of that away i'm i 'm just going to read a very few pages from the very beginning of the novel, so we have um, a little bit of basis for conversation, and then we can let the conversation begin um, under the influence. It was late November, and for a week solid, the rain hadn't let up. Can everybody hear me okay? My son and I had moved out of our old apartment back before school started, but I had left it until now to clear the last of our belongings out of the storage area I'd been renting. With two days left before the end of the month, I decided not to wait any longer for dry weather. Worse things could happen to a person than getting a few boxes wet, as well I knew. The fact that we had finally left this town was good news. Not long before, I'd finally paid off the last of my debt to the lawyer who'd represented me in my custody trial more than a dozen years earlier. Now, <clears throat> Oliver and I were living in a bigger apartment closer to my new job in Oakland, a place where my son could finally have a little space with a little work studio for me, too. After a long, hard stretch, the future looked hopeful. Money being in short supply, as usual, and with Ollie off at his father's for the weekend, I was taking care of this last run over to Goodwill with a bunch of things we didn't need anymore. Just about everything was, was soaked through, and so was I. 
I had pulled up to a four-way stop waiting for my turn. All I wanted at that moment was to get out of town, knowing that once I did, I would never come back. About ten years had gone by since the last time I'd laid eyes on Ava Haviland, and then that day I did. There is this phenomenon I've noticed in the past, the way that, in a vast landscape containing so much visual information, seemingly of no significance, your eyes will be drawn to one small, odd thing among all the thousands of others, the thing that calls out to you, and suddenly, out of everything else your eyes are taking in and disregarding, they'll focus on this one spot where something doesn't make sense or maybe it spells danger, or it just reminds you of a time and place different from this one, and you can't look away. It's the thing you don't expect, that fragment in the landscape out of keeping with the rest. To another pair of eyes, it might mean nothing. I remember a day I'd taken Oliver to a ball game, one of those endless attempts to counter a, to construct a happy, normal time with my son within the unnatural confines of a too-rare six-hour visitation. Halfway up the rows of bleachers, in a totally different section of the ballpark, in among the thousands of other fans, I had spotted a man from my Tuesday night AA meeting holding a beer and laughing in a way that made me know it wasn't his first. A feeling of sadness had come over me. Terror, actually. Because just one week before, we had celebrated his three-year sobriety. And if he could slip this way... What did that say about me? I had looked away that time, turned to my son instead, made some comment about the pitcher, the kind of observation that a person who knew more about the game might say to her son at a moment like this, a moment when a mother wanted, excuse me, a mother when a moment, a moment when a mother wanted to share the experience of a ball game with her boy and forget about everything else. This would be the kind of mother whose child had never seen her hiding wine bottles under the cereal boxes at the bottom of the recycle bin or led into the back seat of a police car in handcuffs. The kind of mother who got to see her child every night, not just for six hours, two Saturdays a month. For years, all I wanted to be was that kind of mother. This was a long time back. I hadn't even met the Havilands yet. I hadn't met Elliot, who, when I did, would have given anything to bring my son and me to a ball game and be part of our small, struggling family. A lot of things hadn't happened yet back in those days. Now here I was at the wheel of my old Honda Civic, idling at that intersection in an unglamorous part of San Mateo, where planes flew so low, taking off from the airport, in, um, or coming in for a landing that you sometimes got the feeling they'd skim off the top of your car. A black car pulled up alongside mine. Not a police car, but it looked like some official vehicle, not a limousine. But it wasn't the man in front whose face caught my attention. It was the passenger in the back seat. She was looking out the window through the rain, and for a moment her eyes caught mine. 
In the few seconds before the black car pulled away from the intersection, I recognized her, and in the odd way the mind works, instinct not yet having caught up with experience, my first impulse was to cry out as a person would who'd spotted a long-lost friend. For a second there, this great wave of pure, uncomplicated happiness started to wash over me. It was Ava. Then I remembered. Ava wasn't my friend anymore. After all that time, it was still an odd sensation seeing her and not calling out, not even raising my hand to wave. I let it go, made my face stone. If she recognized me and something in her eyes, staring out through the glass for those few seconds, suggested that she had, after, that, that she had, after all, she was looking at me, too. She showed no more inclination than I did to acknowledge all that we knew. She'd changed a lot since the last time we'd seen each other. Not just because she was older. Ava would be 62 years old now, I figured. Her birthday was coming up. She had always been thin, but her face looking out the window now seemed skeletal, skin stretched over bone and nothing more. She could have been a dead person, only they hadn't buried her yet, or a ghost, and in many ways, that's what she was to me now. In the old days, when we used to speak every day, more than once a day as a rule. Ava always had a million things to tell me, though part of what I loved was how ready she was to hear what I had to say, too, how intensely she paid attention. She was always in the middle of some project, and it was always exciting. More than anyone I'd ever known, she possessed this air of purpose and assurance. You knew that when Ava came into the room, something was going to happen something wonderful. The person I caught sight of in the back of the official-looking black car that day looked like someone for whom nothing good would ever happen again, a person whose life was over. Her body just hadn't taken in the news yet. Her hair appeared to have gone gray, though most of it was concealed under an odd red cap of the sort the Ava I'd known would never have owned. It was the kind of hat you might buy at a senior citizen's craft fair that some old lady had knitted out of polyester yarn because that was the cheapest than because that was cheaper than wool. Polyester, she said to me once. Can't you just tell from the name that stuff is junk? But this was Ava, all right. Nobody else looked like her. Only the Ava in the car that day no longer sat at the helm of a silver Mercedes Sprinter van. This Ava no longer presided over the big house on Folger Lane with the black-bottomed swimming pool and that exotic rose garden and a gardener on staff to tend it. There was no more Guatemalan maid to pick up her clothes from the cleaners and make sure they were perfectly arranged by color in her vast closet with all the beautiful shoes in their original boxes and the scarves and the jewelry that Swift had picked out for her laid out on velvet trays. The woman in the back seat of the back black car no longer dispensed gifts of cashmere shawls and socks for the lucky people she counted as her friends and shepherd's pie from the back seat for homeless Vietnam veterans and dog bones for strays. 
Impossible to imagine Ava without her dogs, but here she was. More unfathomable of all, this was Ava without Swift. There had been a time when a day didn't go by that I didn't hear her voice. Nearly everything I did was directly inspired by what Ava told me, or didn't even have to tell me, because I knew already what Ava would think, and whatever that was, that's what I believed, too. Then came a long, dark time after she cut me out of her world, and the hard reality of that betrayal became, second only to losing custody of my son, the defining fact of my life. Losing Ava's friendship had left me unable to remember who I might be anymore without her. As strong a force as her presence had created, her absence was stronger yet. So it was a surprise to realize when I caught sight of her through the window of that briefly idling car that a few weeks had gone by since I'd thought about her. And now that I did, I still registered a stab of sick sad loss. Not that I wanted to go back to the old days at that house on Folger Lane. Now I only wished I'd never set foot in it. My concept there was to make sure that you had to continue reading. Um, So uh, now we get to the part that, that is my favorite and that I uh, got on the plane for this morning, um, I'd love to hear absolutely whatever's on your mind. Um, so please don't be shy to share your questions. Yes, Molly, I happen to know this woman. Molly is talking about Labor Day. Of course, and, and the Labor Day movie, we must say, in, in which my pie was um, manifested by Josh Brolin. Uh, yes, well, it was Josh who made the pie, and Josh is one of my many pie students. It was, I suffered through teaching Josh Brolin how to make a pie, but excuse me, I inter- <laughs> Now, I don't even know what Fairbanks and Pickford is. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I was thinking it was a store. Uh, I thought it was some like Denver hangout. Um, well, Ava and Swift, no, I didn't. I wasn't thinking about Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford. Um, and if you read the novel, she well, she's not a Mary Pickford type at all. Actually, he's not a D- Douglas Fairbanks either. I do have pictures in my head, for sure, of these characters. And, and when I'm writing, I'm... I always think that I'm making a movie. And I, I don't mean that I'm sort of writing a book to say, oh, I, I want this book to be made into a movie. I, I am making a movie for you. It's just a very low-budget movie that, um, that takes place on the page. But um, I, I always uh, I say that I, I would have loved to have been a filmmaker, uh, but I, I couldn't have decided what aspect of filmmaking I would have wanted to pursue because I would have wanted to pursue them all. I certainly would have wanted to be the screenwriter and the director and the movie star, of course, and all the minor roles, but I also would have wanted to be the cinematographer and the film editor and the soundtrack person and the costumer. And the great thing about writing a book is that I am doing that. <laughs> 
I am, I am moving the camera and sort of showing you the scenes and cutting when I want to cut and moving in for a close-up when I want to and creating the soundtrack and the lighting that, that um, will set the mood. And I even got, in the case of this one, because Ava is a woman with a, a clothes closet larger than my bedroom, kitchen, and dining room put together, um, I got to invent her wardrobe, her art collection. And um, so I was the set designer and the... And the uh, oh. This is my phone ringing, but I'm going to. I'm not going to answer that. Um, um, it'll stop. Yeah, it did. Um, sorry, podcast people. That we're trying to give you real life here. Uh, um, so uh, I am picturing. I am picturing those people, and I'm describing the movie that I see playing out in front of me. And of course, as as is true when you go to the movies, you don't know how it ends, and that's. True for me too. When I write, I'm I'm watching the movie. I'm writing, I'm writing the book I want to read, with um, great curiosity to see how it'll end. I hope that answered your question. I got a long ways from Fairbanks and Pickford. No, you totally did. I just love the way you write about love. You do it with such a um, it's effortless and complex. Well, I love is definitely a theme for me. I. Um, you know, I probably, if I write another hundred books, I'm unlikely to have, you know, some big car chase or uh, bombing or, you know, um, I believe that some, uh, which is not to say that I don't believe in, in the, the thriller genre. I, I hope this, this book is a kind of thriller, but it's, it's a psychological thriller. I, I regard the, the, you know, the, the crimes that I'm likely to pursue in my work are crimes of the heart. Um, yeah. Oh, don't I know? I do indeed. And I'm so pleased that you bring this up. Um, I, I, I don't think I have yet been to a reading that wasn't attended by at least one writing student of mine. And so I love to speak of that because um, I want more writing students. I love to teach. I, um, I have... I, um, I'm that rare category of writer who mostly has just written for, I don't teach at a university, I don't have a regular sort of teaching job, but um, I just write books, books, articles, essays. Um, but about um, 20 years ago, actually I know exactly when it was, it was when my memoir At Home in the World was published, um, I started teaching occasionally and I, and teaching first just in my home. Um, I'm a college dropout. I didn't have any degrees and I just decided I'm going to hire myself to be a teacher. And it really was because, um, I am the, I am the product of, um, an extraordinary teacher, um, uh, and editor that, best writing instructor, the, the most demanding editor I ever worked with, and that was my mother, um, who raised my sister and me in a kind of boot camp uh, of writing from the age of about three. Um, I always say before I wrote, I gave dictation, and my mother took it seriously, typed it up, mailed it off to Humpty Dumpty magazine. It's true. That was my first publication. And... <laughs> There may be some people old enough to remember that one. Um, and after At Home in the World was published, and you know, for those of you who are familiar with that book, you may know that it was a much embattled, much criticized, I won't even say criticized, it was a condemned book. It was hard in the fall of 1998 to find one critic, one sort of literary pundit, who wasn't casting aspersions uh, against me and calling me this shameless person for having written that book. <coughs> And actually, it briefly, it seemed to really sort of destroy my career. I couldn't, I couldn't 
publish a book that uh, I couldn't, I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a publisher. And so somewhat by default, I started teaching in the only place I could, my living room. Um, and I discovered that I loved to teach and that my, my mother's voice and my mother had already been dead for quite a few years. My mother died, um, way too young. Um, was present every time I taught as it is every time I write. Um, so I, um, I began and I knew that although more and more what I have written in recent years has been, has been fiction, I have a passion for, for teaching memoir and for empowering others of whatever level, sometimes professional or writers who aspire to be professional writers. And sometimes people who just have a story they burn to tell in a way that will enable the reader of that story to understand them, which is a tall order. Um, and, um, I have a house in Guatemala, a house that I actually moved to when I didn't think I could afford to live in the United States anymore, um, in a very beautiful little Mayan village called San Marcos La Laguna on the shores of the deepest lake in Central America, looking out over a uh, a series, a circle of volcanoes. And I decided to start a writing workshop. That was 15 years ago. Um, and one week every year, and it is hands down my favorite week of the year. It's the most demanding week of the year for sure. I, I, um, bring down, uh, 17 writers of very diverse group of the one common, um, element that I think they all share is a spirit of adventure and courage. Um, and we work on telling their stories and I, and I love being the facilitator and Elizabeth Van Ingen, who has since published her book to considerable acclaim. And I think you're a Colorado prize winner. Yes. And I won't take credit from that, but, but, uh, I will, I, I will, I, I love it that I shepherded um, your writing at, 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 uh, um, an early stage. I think you were, you were just beginning that book at that point. And now, now look at you. Um, so that is my labor of love. And sometimes I teach other places at my home in Lafayette, California for a one day workshop. Um, I do it only a few times a year because I give absolutely everything to it when I do. But I, um, if you, if you have any thought to, um, wanting to get a story out that you've never told, um, uh, my little writing circle on the shores of, uh, Lake Atitlan, I will say is a pretty darn good place to do it. Um, uh, and you, you can always learn about it on my website, which is just my name, JoyceMaynard.com. So thank you for asking. That's my recruitment talk. <laughs> yes. So Keller from Durham, New Hampshire, one Oh, good. Oh, boy, they're not the same. Um, and I, I, um, I spent the first 42 years of my life in the state of New Hampshire, and there are two live-free-or-die girls in the back, in the, the back row there, um, one of whom I babysat for. That's another theme. I, when I give a reading, I, I see my, my um, former writing students and my babysitting clients. And, um, and um, my babysitting clients are, are responsible for a good number of book sales because I babysat a lot. Um, when I was young, um, uh, there, uh, so I spent the first 42 years of my life in the state of New Hampshire and then, um, uh, uh, I left, uh, and I 
basically I looked at the map. I was a writer, so I didn't need to be in any particular place for a job. And I looked at um, everywhere that I could think of, and I decided to go to San Francisco, where I had been for exactly one day on a book tour. Um, and I had I was so clueless, it didn't occur to me that there were cheaper places to live than San Francisco. I got on a plane, rented a car, drove over, over the Golden Gate Bridge for the first time. I was feeling kind of uh, confident because a book of mine had just been made into a movie. So I had one good tax return uh, to die for. It's a terrific movie if you haven't seen it, but of course the book is better. Um, and this was 1996 when you could do all kinds of smoke and mirrors and buy houses that you really had no business buying. And I did that and I bought a house in the Bay Area. And I didn't, I continued the next quite a few books that I wrote were still set in New Hampshire. Sometimes I called it Vermont, which actually is a very different state. But I, I was a complete East Coast person in California. And it took me a long time to feel that I could set um, a, a work of fiction in California, the first one that I really did. Uh, there's a little bit in The Usual Rules that, that's set in California, but it's kind of an East Coast book. Um, but the first novel that was really set in the place where I was living then, Marin County, California, was my last book after her, the one right before this one. Um, which was inspired by the mountain that I lived on for many years, Mount Tamalpais. So this is actually only my second California novel, and I it really took me 18, about 16, 15 years of living in California before I felt that I knew the place and the way of life there well enough. I would, as much as I love Colorado, I would not feel probably that I could set a novel. In, I mean, I'd, I'd have to come and stay here for a while, and that wouldn't be so bad, but... Um, um, my heart is actually still in New Hampshire. I, the Bay Area is an extraordinarily beautiful place. And after 18 years of living in California, I still, when people say, where are you from? I still say New Hampshire. I still say New Hampshire. Um, so I, I will probably go back to, uh, New Hampshire stories many more times. Um, but California stories also. One time I published a novel and pr- I, I bet nobody here has read this one. Even people who come and they say, oh, I've read everything you wrote. And I say, well, let me try this one on you. I published a novel called The Cloud Chamber that was inspired by the story of an old boyfriend of mine whose father had shot himself uh, when he was, they were growing up, he was growing up on a farm in Alberta. Shot but not succeeded in killing himself. Uh, he was 12 years old at the time. And um, this was in the 60s. And I set that novel in the 60s in Alberta. And I knew, the, I went to the place, I, I, I was with this man for quite a while, so I knew the story very well and I, and I invented a great deal. But I, 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 there's an example, here's an example of really not recognizing at the time that I was in fact writing about a theme in my life because um, that didn't happen in my life but I grew up in an alcoholic family where there was a different kind of secret never discussed the the cloud chamber is very much about the fact that the family never talks about the father shooting himself and in my family we talked about everything under the sun art, music, literature, politics, sex uh, uh, philosophy uh, religion everything but what happened in our house every night which was that my father got drunk and every morning we pretended it never happened. And the keeping of secrets is definitely, if you sat down and read all my work, you'd certainly see that. But anyway, I set that novel in Alberta, the only time I did such a thing. And my American publisher, which is not the publisher I have now, um, said, you know what, people don't really want to buy, Americans don't want to buy books that are set in Canada. This was before Justin Trudeau became the prime minister. 
um, and possibly before Donald Trump would become the president when people would want to go to Canada. But... Um, um, but in those days, they said, uh, people don't want it. So I set that novel in the state of Montana. And I researched Montana heavily, but I didn't know Montana. And I like that novel. I'm proud of that novel. But it doesn't have the sense of place that, that I really believe in as a writer. So I'm, I'm probably not going to write a Colorado novel for a while. But you'll know a lot about New Hampshire if you read my books. Somebody else back there had a question. Yes. I know you from another reading, don't I? You look familiar. No? Oh. Ah, okay. You just. So, was your mother a writer? My mother wanted to be a writer. And like so many of the mothers of her generation, she was, you know, raising me in the 50s and the 60s. She was a highly, she was a brilliant woman, powerfully, you know, powerful intelligence and energy. She had a PhD from Harvard, Radcliffe in those days, and she could not get a job. She sold encyclopedias door to door and tutored Latin for a dollar an hour and raised my sister and me. And you'd better believe she put a lot of energy into us. Um, we were her product. Um, and that's why she raised us, you know, both of us became writers. Um, uh, she eventually she started writing for the baby magazines and uh, she was the ghost writer for Dr. Joyce Brothers, which is not why I'm named Joyce. Um, and in her 50s, um, uh, she did become a writer and published two wonderful memoirs um, and died way too young in her in her 60s. Um, but really, um, it, one of the big challenges of my life as a writer was getting my mother's writing voice out of my head. She's, she trained me so skillfully to write like her. And then I had to find out who I was. And that, that took me a while. My, I, my first memoir, Not at Home in the World, um, uh, was really the, and it was, it was a book I published when I was 19, and, and it was still the story my mother wanted me to tell. And as much as I adored my mother, at some point we have to leave our mother's storytelling and tell ours. Um, and that's what I finally did in my 40s uh, with my mother dead and... Um, uh, I always say to my writing students, write as if you were an orphan, and I happened to be one, and was one rather young, but but um, I, I probably had to leave the state of New Hampshire and lose my mother before I could fully tell the, what a, what a grim thing to say to these two women who are mother and daughter sitting, and the woman who loves her mother and has the book club. <laughs> you, <laughs> I... You, I'm sure you can do it without leaving your mother. But, but for me, my mother presided over my life in a very big and powerful way. And um, I, I would give anything not to have lost her when I was 35 years old. But that, it's no coincidence that that's when, I, that's when I began to write in a whole different way. And that's the way that I encourage the writers that, who come to Guatemala to write. Yes! Uh, I was, it was actually the man behind you, Lisa, and then, oh, okay, Lisa, I'm going to ask you, but I, yes, and then I'll get to you. And what's your name? Joseph, hi. Who 
Uh, yes, I, um, well, I, I love the first person. Are you a writer yourself that you're asking this question? Yeah, you can say it. And it's not about whether you've published your work or that's never my measure. If, if you're writing in a serious way, you're, you're committing your time and energy and you're to the struggle, then I'll call you a writer. Um, um, I, I've written in a number of different voices. Uh, I happen to love the first person voice. Um, and I think maybe it's because, um, I, I, I love storytelling. I love listening to stories. My, my mother and father were both spectacular storytellers and I can, and they, they were great performers and, um, and so I just love, actually, my babysitting client who was reminding me that I used to tell her stories when she was little. I love this. I love the sort of snuggling up on, on the couch and sort of getting, having somebody tell me a good story. My friend in Denver who, you know, who picked me up at the airport today, you know, sat me down on her, it was a warm day in Denver. We sat down on her porch and, and she told me some great stories. I love that. And I want, I want you to have that feeling when you read a book of mine. I haven't done it every single time, but, um, uh, and of course, when a novel is written in the first person, you also know this is not the truth. It is that person's truth. It is, um, there actually is a reason why I have this phone up here, but I'm sorry that it's ringing. Um, um, and you take that into account. This is not, here is how things happened. This is, here is how things looked to this character. And part of the story may be that the character was very deluded. And, and we, as the readers, can sort of say, wait a second, that's a very interesting experience when that happens. Um, a book that was a big influence for me in writing this one, actually, was The Great Gatsby, um, a book about a sort of a disillusioned, you know, a, a, a lost friendship. And, and sometimes I, I actually keep a book that I really admire on my desk, and, and periodically I just pick it up and I, to a random page, and I, I look at, now, how did that writer do that? And I... Um, and that um, the Great Gatsby, although it would seem to be a you know completely different story, is is about uh, there are some real links. Um, and and I I thought about the characters, the, the character of the storyteller in that one, who's a man, of course. I've written in the first person of a man. I actually love doing that. Um, Labor Day is written in a in male voice, and I one of the things I I get to do as a writer is be somebody other than me. So that's really fun. Because one life doesn't quite feel enough. Lisa, you were going to ask. Thank you for asking that question. It's interesting. It's interesting. I hadn't thought about this until this moment. I, I, the daughter of this, you know, larger than life mother. Um, I mean, a woman who really just could fill a room with her presence. Um, my mother, my mother should have been a performer like your mother, but she wasn't, and so she created settings. When my mother gave a party, she um, one time she hired a troupe of Shakespearean actors to be ready to perform different scenes from Shakespeare minus one character, and she floated through the room, stepping into these different roles. <laughs> 
And she knew them all because she had an incredible memory. My mother, one time when she moved, she moved to Toronto from New Hampshire in her in her late 50s, and she didn't know anybody in Toronto, and she decided to throw a party for 100 men and no women. <laughs> and she didn't really know the men. She just thought, you know, these look like interesting men, and she, you know, she, and, and they came. Um, uh, what was my point? Oh, I know what my point was. It's, it just occurred to me when you said that, that uh, for all the kinds of relationships and families that I have explored in my now 18 books and nine novels, I... I tend to have rather motherless people. The, the character in Under the Influence is a woman whose mother just completely abandoned her, was absent. The, the mother in After Her is a loving mother, but she's really shut down. She's, she just sort of stays in her room. The mother in Labor Day is also, you know, similarly, she's not functioning very successfully. She's, you know, she's inviting the convict home to move in with them and has a love affair with him over the weekend. Um, uh, these were not my mother. And and maybe, I'm not too much daunts me as a writer, but maybe I don't really want to write the a mother like my mother because I lived, I didn't live enough years with her, but, but the years that I had with her were, were such a powerful force that I, I haven't yet done a big, strong mother-daughter relationship. I've, 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 I'm probably, I, I've spent more time exploring the absence of a mother. Um, just that just came to me. Um, yes. So you know, I'm a writer. Great. And then it stopped. And I it stopped. You mean the, crea- the creative part of it is really cool. Mm. I love doing that and redoing it and redoing it. And then I've got to be something else. I've got to be a technical person. I've got to find my way around publishing and agents, and that isn't in my head. I mean, I'm so bad at that. Is that hard for you, or is it over? Well, um, I'll I'll talk about how it is for me in a minute, but I have very very strong words on the subject of the technical part. Um, And I might have a lot more writing students if I didn't say this, but I I would also be a fraud. I, I would be misleading people and wasting their money. What I say about my own teaching is I don't spend much time talking about getting an agent, pitching a story, negotiating contracts. These are nice problems to have after you've done the really hard work on the writing. And you won't, I know you're not going to take this as a personal criticism of your writing because I haven't read your writing, but I will say that almost without exception, when somebody comes to a writing workshop of mine and says, you know, oh, I just keep on getting these rejection letters, you know, I've, I've sent letters to a million agents and I still don't have an agent. I say, you're, how about spending that time on your writing, not on the career part? I, I actually have a, a hugely optimistic belief that when you do the hard work on your writing, and many people submit prematurely, and I, I take one look at the piece of work that they've submitted, and it may be filled with talent, but I see why. It's a very tough world out there, the world of publishing. I am a tough writing teacher, but I'd rather that you experience that toughness on the shores of a beautiful lake, having wonderful meals, and you know, looking at a volcano, than day after day getting the frustration of going out to your mailbox and getting a rejection letter. And um, the best way I know to help a writer publish her work or his work is to help her be a better writer. And I, uh, 
I really do believe that when you have strong work, it will be found. And I, and then I can tell you a million ways that it happens because there really are still agents who read submissions from, you know, from people that don't, you know, that come in cold and they're, it really does happen, but it happens to writers who've been working, um, extraordinarily hard and not on their own and not with a writing group of their friends who say, Oh, I really love that chapter, but with somebody who's not their friend, who is very tough. Um, one of the things I'm sure you can tell me this and your mom can tell you this. One of the first things that happens here there go here go any any possible applicants for Guatemala that I might have got. I I begin preparing people before they come for the fact that very likely I will tell you to throw away a lot of work, and I don't suggest to any writer anything that I haven't done myself many times. I I even after decades of writing, I've as recently as a year and a half ago, I threw away a two hundred page book because it wasn't good enough. It wasn't badly written. I don't write badly, but I know what a tough world it is out there in publishing today. Um, um, so um, I leave it till the last day, and then we do talk about it. Um, and every now and then, there's a student that I say, you know, I think you're ready. It, not usually for a while, but um, and I'm very proud of the students like Elizabeth who have published their work, but I bet there was a lot of revising going on and a lot of hard work. Yes? But, you know, on the other hand, I know writers who are good and work very hard, and they get so discouraged because a lot of bad stuff gets published. Yes. It does, and, and you know, if I looked through it, I could, I could say some reasons why it did, um, uh, and that has to do with what they're writing about. Um, I don't think a lot of terrible um, literary short story collections get published because that's not a commercial genre. And, you know, if what you're interested in is um, selling a whole lot of books and making a whole lot of money and, and that hasn't been my game, then, you know, maybe you can do that. I'm, I'm really interested in... Um, I have periodically over the years had a book that did really well, and I've had years that were just brutal when I didn't know how I was going to, you know, come up with my kids' college tuition. And and um, what has sustained me over the years, what has ultimately been most meaningful, have not are not those brief moments, those exciting flickers when you know. I go on the Today Show or something. It is the constancy of doing the work, knowing I've done good work, hearing from a reader, including a reader of some book like The Cloud Chamber that sold really badly but that I'm proud of. And um, ultimately, that's what endures for me, and that's what, that's what I aspire to, and that's what I aspire to helping another writer experience. You know, what it is like to tell a story so well that the reader, the reader knows what it was like to be you and and connects with you. And, um, um, and I've seen that happen and it's, it, it is a transforming thing. When I wrote at home in the world, I, I had a story that I had kept silent for 25 years that I had never told. And after I wrote that book, um, I could go on and tell all the other stories that, that had been sort of locked up because I was stuck on that story. It's a, it, it's a life-altering event to to tell one's truth. And, and so many, I don't want to go to my deathbed not having spoken my truth. And I don't think anybody, and this is sort of what the big uproar about at home in the world was, that, that any, any human being has the right to say of another human being's story, she does not have a right to tell it. That's that. 
she should keep her mouth shut. And that's what was said about me, um, because at home in the world, um, involved in part, in part only a character, um, who was regarded as so important, so, so much more important than I that, and, and somebody who I'll just say it, it was Salinger. It's no big mystery. Um, that the idea that I would presume to write a story in which I told of my relationship with Salinger was regarded as an act of, of betrayal and blasphemy. Um, um, they were wrong. And thank you. And, and I, you know, I've made my peace with the fact that some people will always think that, and those aren't the people for whom I write. But I, it is a big part of why I, why I teach to to just remind those who write, you have a right to tell your story, and then help them tell it so well that they will be unassailable, and they'll get it published, and they will get it published. Elizabeth. I hope there was more than one thing. It was, but this I have on my website even. Tell the truth. Your reader will know when you're not telling the Yes. And sometimes people will come to uh, one of my workshops and they'll say, you know, there's just this one, I'm going to tell everything except there's this one thing that would really embarrass, you know, my husband or something. And, and I can understand it. It's, it's, it's hard. Um, and it's, it's, it's costly sometimes to tell the uncomfortable truths. Um, but it's, you know, I actually feel I have a big responsibility to readers. If you're going to pay 20 bucks for my book, spend, you know, 10 hours reading it, you deserve the story. And, and that's what I intend to give you. Um, Yes. Uh, I, I was curious. You, you were talking about the, um, the second memoir that you wrote. Yes. Which actually is a book I have at home. I recently bought it, I haven't read yet. Um, I was curious how it felt to you to just have to tolerate that. You know what I mean? How you felt about the book. Did it change in any way? I don't regret one word of that book. Um, and. <laughs> Um, and as, and it was a book that cost me dear in all kinds of ways. Um, in 1998, I was invited. I was only invited because my friend Judy Bloom sort of pushed for me to be invited to a, a literary festival. Um, big deal literary festival and I was really a pariah in 1998 and I got up on the stage to deliver my talk and an entire row as many people times two as in this row of very well-known literary figures at this festival got up en masse and walked out of the room um at a moment like that, you have to you, either it's going to break you. You're going to burst into tears and say they don't like me. You know, I, I I'm not I'm not the popular girl. Or you will say, you know, am, am I a different person because they don't they don't like me and they haven't even listened to me. They don't even know who I am and what my story is. Um, and, so it was my trial by fire. If ever there was going to be a moment for me to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge, it was the fall of 1998 when At Home in the World was published and the Washington Post called it the worst book ever published and Time Magazine said the one good thing about At Home in the World is um, now that Joyce Maynard has told this story, we'll never have to hear another one from her. <laughs> Wrong were they. Um, um, so, you know, it, and it actually made me very free. There's, boy, there's not a lot that'll hurt me now uh, um, in... in in terms of criticism, I don't, I don't read the reviews very much, um, and it, it has to cut both ways. If somebody praised me extravagantly, I wouldn't. That wouldn't change my view of who I am either. Yes. I just have to say this. 
Oh. Those, when seventeen was big, yes. and the seven, the September issue, don't we remember? Yeah, yeah. Oh well, thank you for coming. I, you know, I, if you will indulge me, this is the reason why I kept my um, my phone up here, even though it was being sort of annoying. I wanted to share with you, and of course, the, the thing I want you to do is buy this book. But I wanted to share with you a very short piece of writing that was of mine that was published just a few weeks ago in the New York Times. It's that has nothing to do with under the influence, but um, it felt like um, something I wanted to read in Denver and especially this particular night. Um, so it's, um, it was in the modern love column. Um, and it's an essay, uh, called, uh, what luck means now. Oh, and now my phone is ringing, so I don't even decline. Then I can go back to it. Okay. Sorry. And I was actually, the reason I decided to read off of this was that I was at an event that was like a hipster event a couple of weeks ago in, in San Francisco at this club called the Makeout Room. I was old enough to have given birth to anybody in the audience. And all the other people who were performing, who were also, you know, could have been my grandchildren practically, were reading off their cell phones. And I'd never done such a thing. So I decided I'm going to start reading off my cell phone. So anyway, this is an essay that we'll maybe end with... Um, Although I could talk to you all night, but you probably have other things to do. Go off and hike somewhere. Um, um, This is an essay called What Luck Means Now. The room where I'll spend the day, and this is not a work of fiction, I should say. The room where I'll spend the day, if I am lucky, is fluorescent lit, lined with hard plastic chairs, and has a reminder on the wall concerning the importance of hand sanitizer. Though friends have offered to accompany me, I am here alone. On the opposite side, a family has gathered, a man in his early 60s like me, and four young people around the ages of my children. They are engaged in cheerful-sounding small talk about their jobs, the Red Sox. As for me, I don't feel like talking to anyone. I arrived here a little after 6 a.m. after kissing my husband goodbye before they wheeled him into surgery. The surgery is expected to take 12 hours. Though somewhere around hour three, the surgeon will have gotten to the place in Jim's abdomen where he can see the tumor, known only to us as an innocuous-looking gray area on Jim's CT scan. Sometimes this turns out to be the moment when the surgeon discovers the tumor is not operable after all, in which case they stitch everything up and say, we tried. The tumor in question, I haven't allowed myself to call it Jim's tumor, I don't want to see him take ownership, is 2.5 centimeters in diameter and located in the head of Jim's pancreas. For my husband to survive... To have a shot at survival, this tumor must come out. The operation calls for the removal of part of Jim's pancreas, his gallbladder, his duodenum, and parts of his small intestine and stomach. Picture gutting a fish, Jim, a fly fisherman, said to a friend. That's roughly the idea. It's odd to say of an operation like this that a person is lucky to be receiving it. But Jim and I do feel lucky. Seven months earlier, when we went to the doctor, 
anticipating gallstones. We learned the tumor was probably inoperable. There's a surgery that gives you a shot, Jim's doctor said. A shot, just that. But suddenly a shot was everything. It's called the Whipple procedure. From that moment, our focus had become shrinking the tumor to where Jim could get the Whipple. And after eight rounds of chemotherapy and two of radiation, the day has come. The Whipple is brutal surgery in the best of circumstances, the best being a strange phrase to employ when discussing a form of cancer with a two-year survival rate of around 5%. Don't Google it, they told us that first day, but we did. The day we learned the news, just 15 months had passed since our wedding on a New Hampshire hillside with friends and children gathered, fireworks exploding, and a band backing us up as we performed a duet on a John Prine song and talked about the trips we would take, the olive trees we would plant. Each of us had been divorced almost 25 years. How lucky, everyone said, that we had found each other when we did. Now luck means having this operation. In four hours, luck will mean getting a call from a nurse who says, they've reached the tumor, they're going in for it. I have a book, but I keep reading the same sentence. On the other side of the room, the father and the four young people are unwrapping sandwiches and laughing. The 20-somethings are telling funny stories about their mother. If not for the institutional decor, you might think they were enjoying a family reunion. My children and Jim's are nowhere near. I'm 3,000 miles from home. In those terrible weeks after the diagnosis, I lived with a phone on either ear, calling hospitals and researching treatments that might offer what the, doctor, what the first doctor had not, the possibility of a future. When a program looked promising, we got on a plane. It was in this city, at this hospital, where we found the surgeon who said, I believe I can get your husband's tumor out. Not even 18 hours earlier, we marked this moment with a day game at Fenway Park, and afterward, we celebrated the Red Sox win with oysters and a martini each. Jim bought a cap. Bald for many months, his hair was back. He was thin but handsome. It was about two years before that Jim had asked me to marry him on the deck of his Oakland, California home with a couple of martinis and a plate of oysters. Never a skillful liar. He had pointed me toward a particular oyster and suggested I try it. Tucked into the shell, a diamond ring. I had been single for 24 years. Just putting that ring on my finger felt odd almost embarrassing, as later it would be difficult to say my husband or refer to myself as Jim's wife. To me, marriage had meant trouble, failure, pain. Why risk that again? Only I did. We bought a home, made big plans. Then came the diagnosis. I think it was then, not the day of our wedding, when the words wife and husband entered my vocabulary, the first time I could speak them without awkwardness. They slipped into my speech over the weeks and months I spent navigating the world of cancer treatment, searching for the bobbing scrap of hope in an ocean of trouble, drug trials, immunotherapy, extreme diets. 
I express mailed our scans to facilities as far away as Germany, and when we were told the next appointment was three months out, I said, my husband needs to see the doctor now. My husband. At some point, I realized I no longer spoke of Jim's treatment or Jim's scan. We're on fulfirinox now, I would say. We're getting cyberknife radiation. And then we shrank the tumor by 50%. We're getting surgery. For years after my divorce, I had called myself a solo operator, but I had longed for a big romance. And with Jim, I found it. The summer after we met, we saw, we saw a 1982 Chrysler LeBaron convertible on Craigslist in Maine and bought it, then flew from California to pick it up. For the first time in 38 years of practicing law, Jim took the summer off. We put 4,000 miles on that convertible, mostly on New England back roads. We ate lobster rolls and danced and talked about riding Jim's motorcycle across the country. Allie McGraw and Ryan O'Neill might have made it look otherwise, but cancer is not romantic. Always a lean man, Jim dropped 30 pounds. I had admired the way he dressed, conservative but sharp. Now he wore his suit like David Byrne in the Talking Heads video of our youth. When it looked as if a recurrent C. difficile infection might kill him, he was down to 108 pounds and dropping. I persuaded him to have a fecal transplant. Donor, me. He had been, since 13, a bass player, a rock and roll guy, also an Eagle Scout. I loved that about him. Now, as the chemo ate away at him and his triumph gathered dust, it seemed important that he keep playing. So one day, I made a paella for the whole band and their wives. But the morning of the party, the neuropathy kicked in from the chemo, leaving Jim's fingers numb unable to play. That night, I stood at the edge of our silent yard and dumped five pounds of seafood. No rock and roll that day, or that season, or the one that followed. In the waiting room, the family across from me has brought in food for dinner. They are just opening their styrofoam containers when a woman approaches, bends to speak with the father, a hand on his shoulder. The daughter leans in, and the son, and the two others I realize must be their partners. Suddenly, the room is spinning. The food drops to the floor. The father just sits there, hands to his face, shaking his head, but the children are weeping, then wailing. Someone stands, staggers, drops to the floor. They all rush out, food wrappers and bags abandoned. It can happen that swiftly, the end of life as we knew it. Then, too, time can creep so slowly, even a moment seems endless. It's close to midnight when the surgeon calls. This was the toughest Whipple I ever performed, he says. They got the tumor and took 38 lymph nodes. It will be another few days before the pathology report, but things look good. In the recovery room, I find the bed with Jim in it, though he is much changed from the person I met not even four years earlier on a Match.com date at a restaurant in Marin County, California, where I kept waiting for him to suggest that we order something, but he never did. Later, he explained, I was just so knocked out by you, I forgot. There are tubes coming out of him, 
His eyes are closed, mouth open. He looks 100 years old, but he is alive. I'm his wife, I tell the nurse, and take my place by the bed. Thank you. I would love to sign your books. Um, and my husband, uh, my husband is carrying on. It's, uh, he actually had a surgery today, but not a cancer surgery. Um, the Whipple procedure leaves you pretty beat up and vulnerable to all kinds of things. But um, he is, um, as of today, uh, cancer-free. That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Foden. We have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.